It's now my great pleasure to introduce the Wilbur and Orville Wright Lecture. This is the Society's main lecture, uh, both in the UK and overseas. This is the 95th such lecture, and we always try and get it as close as we possibly can to the actual date of the brothers' first flight, and we're not far out this year. I'm delighted that Dr. John Green has agreed to give the lecture, and you'll see from the abstract in your program um, that it is entitled Aviation and the Environment. The subject could not be more opportune. Um, it is something that we're beginning to read about um, in all spectrums of the press, all spectra of the press, on a daily basis. It is a problem for this industry. Um, our job is clearly to get more science into the debate and perhaps a little less emotion. But it is emotional. Um, it will, as a subject, it will not go away. So it behoves us to advance uh, the science um, in our understanding. And John is at the forefront of this, has been for some time, and I can't think of anybody more appropriate to give a lecture on aviation and the environment tonight. So over to you, John, for the Wilbur and Orville Wright Lecture. Thank you. Thank you, President. Well, it, uh, it is a great honor to be asked to give the, the Wilbur and Orville Wright Lecture. I'm grateful to you, President, for inviting me to do so. And as you say, it is an important subject. Argu arguably, it's the, it's the most important issue that civil aviation faces in the coming century or the century that we're now in. Uh, and it's a big subject. And I really need a day or a day and a half, or perhaps two days, to, um, to take you through it properly. So I'm going to limit what I say, firstly to technical things, um, no politics, no economics. And even within those technical things, just concentrating on a few what I think are key issues. Uh, before I do so, I, I'd like to say a little about uh, Wilbur and Orville uh, and how they came to do what they did. Because I, I, I'm a great fan of theirs. I, I see them as an example to us all. And I believe there are even lessons um, that we can learn from them as we think about uh, tackling the environmental imp impact of uh, aviation in the next 50 years. This is uh, a photograph of them at the peak of their fame and success. They were international superstars by, by this time. Uh, Wilbur is the one on the right in the dark suit. Uh, they were two of five children. They had two older brothers and a younger sister. Their father was a bishop. Their mother was a lady. It was said with quite exceptional intuitive insight into uh, the way physical things worked. And, and that undoubtedly rubbed off on, on the two of them. In 19, sorry, in 18, in 1892, um, when Orville was 21, Wilbur was 25, they went into partnership with a bicycle shop selling these newfangled bicycles, um, and later designing and, and making them. And a couple of years later, they read in an American journal of the exploits of Otto Lilienthal in Germany. He had been a great, uh, done a great deal of experimental flying with a glider, this kind of hang glider thing that you see here. Uh, he was so much into it that he built himself 
a gliding hill, the Fliegerberg here. Um, two years after that photograph was taken, almost exactly two years after it was taken, let me go back, um, he, he crashed, he stole the glider, uh, crashed, and the day later died. And when that news got to Dayton, uh, it triggered the Wright brothers' interest in aviation still further, and they began to discuss amongst themselves whether or not it really was possible for man to fly, and to fly safely. And uh, the Wright brothers' method of uh, developing their understanding was to argue with each other uh, quite violently. They had a lot of shouting. But at the end of the process, they always arrived at uh, an agreement, and that agreement took them a step forward in their understanding. And having been triggered by Lilienthal's death, they argued off and on for about two and a half years as to whether or not uh, it was possible for men to fly. In uh, 1899, in the spring, they convinced themselves that they knew how to do it. They'd arrived at the conclusion that the secret was that you, if you weren't going to kill yourself, you had to be in control of the machine. Um, they regarded Lilienthal's method of control, which was to swing his legs and body about to move the center of gravity of the, the glider about, was not the way to do it. They'd watched birds, they'd watched birds soaring and observed that the movement of the uh, tip feathers to, uh, to respond to gusts. And they decided that what you needed was movable aerodynamic surfaces. Uh, and so convinced were they by this that in, uh, in the spring of 1899, Wilbur wrote to Princeton, to, uh, to the Smithsonian and, uh, asked for everything that they could send him on flight, asked for information of everything that was, had been written about flight. Um, by the summer, by July, they'd actually said, the way we will do this aerodynamic control, they'd looked at all sorts of complicated ways, the way we'll do it is by having a biplane glider, and we will twist the wings, and that will control it in roll, like the birds do. Um, in July, Wilbur built a five-foot span kite, and went out and tried it, proved that the system worked, and in August that year, they decided, that's it, we will build a man-flying uh, kite. We will, we, will, we will take the thing on at full scale. Um, in November that year, they, they'd pushed forward the design. I mean, they had to start from first principles and design and build something. Um, they wrote to the U.S. Weather Bureau to ask for suitable sites. <clears throat> By August of 2000, 1900, August of 1900, they had got the glider well under construction, and they got a letter back which persuaded them that Kitty Hawk, which is in North Carolina in the Outer Banks, uh, it's a sort of mile-wide strip of sand about 60 miles long, um, was a good place. It was said to have um, steady prevailing winds in the second half of the year. Uh, the, the land was soft, it was sand, and it was devoid of anything except one large <clears throat> sort of sand dune in the middle of it. And so they decided to go to Kitty Hawk with their glider. Um, Wilbur went down there first, leaving uh, uh, his brother to uh, uh, man the bicycle shop. And he wrote back to his father at a stage when he was getting well on with assembling the components of this glider uh, to reassure his father that uh, he wasn't going to do anything dangerous. But the, the key thing here in their early stage is that solving the problem of control is the key. And once we've done that, putting a motor on it and getting a flying machine um, is going to be easy. Uh, Orville jo joined him and they started experiments on their glider. This is the first glider they built. Flying it as a kite, it had a wing area of 165 square feet. 
It only developed about half the lift that they'd expected. They'd designed it using tables that Lilienthal had produced. It also behaved strangely in pitch. And they did quite a lot of kite flying, and then on the last day they took it to Big Kill Devil Hill and did some glides on it. And they went home very disappointed, but determined to come back the next year. They came back the next year with a machine with nearly twice the wingspan, and you can see that the, um, it's being flown here as a kite, uh, twisting the wings will control it in roll, and there is this foreplane, uh, which uh, was a control of the aircraft in pitch. Um, although it was twice the size, it still only generated less than half the expected lift. They did manage a number of successful straight glides. They did quite a lot of straight line gliding. The controls worked splendidly. When they tried a turn, it side-slipped in. Um, Orville got a black, black eye the first time it happened. They tried a few more glides and decided this, was, this machine was not safe. Uh, and they went back to Dayton in despair. And they more or less decided to give up. They, they'd reached the point of thinking it was impossible. That didn't last long, of course. Um, they decided they needed better aerodynamic data than Lilienthal's table, so they built a wind tunnel. It's not unlike the world's first wind tunnel, which the Royal Aeronautical Society built. Uh, it was built in um, Greenwich in 1872, designed by Wenham, who was one of the founder members of the society. The Wrights uh, built a similar tunnel and did a great deal of uh, aerodynamic testing in it. Many tests of it, different airfoil profiles, different airfoil platforms and designed and built themselves a new glider for 1902, seen here flying as a kite. Um, not much bigger than the 1901 machine, but appreciably greater wingspan. And the addition on this glider was the fixed twin vertical tail fins, which were expected to uh, improve its control and make it um, steerable in turns. They found that this was this glided beautifully as a machine and was very good and the controls worked superbly in a straight line. When they tried turning it, it had this dangerous behavior again of side-slipping into the ground, um, plowing the wingtip into the sand, what the White Brothers called well-digging. And having thought and argued about it for a while, they came up with this solution, a, a glider with a movable um, steerable rudder, single steerable rudder. That was Orville's idea. Um, it was coupled to the wing twisting system so that the roll control and directional control were coupled via cables. And that was Wilbur's idea. And it was the first fully controllable glider, and it had its first flight on the 8th of October, 1902. And, and I'd be prepared to argue a case that actually this is a more important date than the first date of the powered flight. But uh, there it was. They did a great deal. They did about a 1,000 successful glides in this machine. They broke all sorts of records. It had a lower glide angle than a buzzard. Um, it was a lovely machine. A year later, they came back with this appreciably bigger airplane. Um, it, uh, it now had an, a motor, which they'd had to design and make themselves because there wasn't anything available on the market that could do it. And, and more importantly, they had to develop propeller theory. There was no propeller theory. They developed a propeller theory. They used the aerofoil sections, data on the aerofoil sections that they'd tested in their wind tunnel. And, the thrust of their propellers at a given speed came out within about 1% of, um, of what they'd predicted. Um, exactly 103 years ago today, on the 14th of December 1903, they took that machine out. There wasn't very much wind, so they took it out to <coughs> Big Hill Devil Hill. They laid out their starting rail on it. Um, the brothers tossed a coin. Wilbur won. 
got in the machine, took off, climbed too steeply, stalled, pancaked into the ground, um, broke a skid, and the flight lasted three and a half seconds. They took the machine back and fixed it, and three days later, this famous picture, taken on the 17th of December, shows Orville taking off, taking off into a 4-6 wind, not quite technically a gale, but uh, it was a very strong wind. Um, Wilbur watching him go. And you can see in front of Orville, lying on the glider, you can see the, um, <coughs> the canard control there, and it's a biplane control. It's got much bigger area than the 1902 glider had. And it made the machine hypersensitive in control. It was almost an uncontrollable um, a device. And Orville managed to keep it in the air for 12 seconds before he plowed in. Wilbur had a go, then Orville had a go, and on both occasions they flew it for about 12 seconds before uh, they were unable to continue to control it. The fourth flight, Wilbur got the hang of it and flew for nearly a minute, 59 seconds, uh, and then tried to negotiate a bump in the ground and that caused the control instability and uncontrollability to, to throw him to. He crashed and slightly damaged the airplane. But by that time, he'd flown 852 feet um, and taking a, account of the headwind, he'd actually flown more than half a mile. They carried the machine back to base camp with the intention of having some lunch, fixing it, and doing some more flying. But while their backs were turned, the wind caught it, turned it over, and, and completely wrecked it. So that fourth flight was the last flight of the, uh, of the Kitty Hawk flyer. But that was the beginning of uh, the business that's got us all here today, and which over the past century has had such a tremendous influence on the world, um, both in terms of uh, its military power and uh, and the good that civil aviation has brought to the world. And as we go into the 21st century, we're faced with this question now of what can be done to prevent the environmental impact of aviation constraining the growth of air travel and constraining the good that that brings. And uh, the Air Travel Greener by Design initiative it was thoughts like that that caused that to be launched six and a half years ago. It had these objectives, and it had as founders a body that was basically <coughs> the whole UK civil aviation community, including the airports. <coughs> the Royal Air Society and the SBAC were really the leaders in setting this up. They founded, a, created three subgroups to, to go forward uh, working on the problems, and uh, since the foundation I found myself... Um, through saying yes to something that I didn't quite understand as a question, I found myself chairman of the technology subgroup. Uh, and Greener by Design is now incorporated as a group within the Royal Aeronautical Society. And I could tell you many of the things that have been successfully done by Greener by Design, uh, running conferences, great deal of, of, of uh, discussions and taking, getting ideas and opinions across to policymakers. But um, I'll just show you this picture. But it's uh, the cover of uh, my subgroup's report in second report, which was, came out in July 2005, really just to show you this, what is a sort of mascot of uh, um, air travel greener by design, this blended wing body shape. Um, this is this particular blended wing body is Cranfield University's student project, MSc student project, very big study of about three years ago. For those interested, uh, there's the website address for a Greener by Design, and all the Greener by Design publications are available there. What are the environmental objectives for aviation? Reducing noise around airport is one. 
improving la local air quality by reducing NOx, that's the, those two oxides of nitrogen, improving their emissions, reducing their emissions in the landing and takeoff cycle because of the health hazards of those NOx. Um, <clears throat> and third, reducing contribution to climate change. From the beginning uh, in the technology group, we took that climate change as the most important issue by far, although we did discuss all three in both of our reports. Um, it appears that the government now also um, considers uh, climate change the most important environmental impact. And uh, from this point on, I'm only going to talk to you about climate change. We've, as I say, we've studied all these things, but uh, we haven't got a day and a half. Um, ACARI, the Advisory Council for Aeronautical Research in Europe, when it set itself a whole range of objectives for the aerospace industry for 2020, included a number of environmental objectives. Halving fuel burn and carbon dioxide emissions, uh, halving perceived noise level on the ground, um, reducing NOx emissions by 80%. Um, and these were um, reductions for new aircraft entering service in 2020 with the operational procedures in operation in 2020 compared with new aircraft entering service in year 2000 and the operating procedures of 2000. So the operating procedures had a contribution to make to these things. Akari said the objectives are not achievable without important breakthroughs. The underlining um, is theirs. And we, from the beginning, uh, in Greener by Design, did wonder about breakthroughs. And uh, let's go back to that December the 17th, 1903, and move on 44 years. December the 17th, 1947, was the date of the first flight of that, the Boeing B-47. And uh, <clears throat> looking at the two, it's fairly clear that there have been quite a few breakthroughs between 1903 and, uh, and 1947. Come on another 60 years, nearly. Um, the Airbus A380, two weeks ago, finished its development, flight development program, about 700 flights, <clears throat> and uh, it'll enter service in uh, 2007, 60 years on from the first flight of the B-47. <clears throat> the airplanes are essentially the same in layout, a fuselage, swept wings, engines under slung. Um, they actually both have very similar cruise altitudes and very similar cruise Mach numbers. So uh, the breakthroughs over the past 60 years are not so evident, certainly from the outside, as, uh, as they have been in the past. So coming to climate change, where break, breakthroughs are needed, this is a slightly complicated chart. It shows the contribution of various emissions to uh, the impact of aviation on climate, which is currently characterized by something called radiative forcing. Up the vertical scale on the left-hand side, we have radiative forcing measured in milliwatts per square meter. Radiative forcing is the, the, the emission of greenhouse gases um, changing the balance between incoming solar radiation and outgoing infrared radiation from the Earth. And perturbing that balance causes the, the uh, Earth to, to warm up. There are a number of con uh, contributors shown along here. The blue bars are, come from the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report on Aviation and the Global Atmosphere, which came out in 1999 and produced these bars as estimates for uh, aviation in the year 1992. The white additions 
are really just the 1992 estimates scaled up for the increase in air travel to the year 2000. And the red bars come from a European study called Tradeoff, um, which uh, done in 2003, which looks at emission levels in 2000. Along the, you have the various contributors here and the level of scientific understanding of their contribution along the bottom. For carbon dioxide, the level of understanding is considered to be good. Oxides of nitrogen are not greenhouse gases, but they generate ozone, which is a greenhouse gas, and destroy methane, which is also a greenhouse gas. But the net effect is a further positive contribution to uh, radiative forcing. Then there's some lesser contributors, which more or less cancel. And then we have contrails and cirrus cloud. Um, and at least some of the cirrus cloud, and possibly most of the cirrus cloud, comes from uh, the aviation-induced cirrus cloud comes from contrails. So the, the uncertainty about cirrus cloud is so great that these totals, IPCC and trade-off, excluded cirrus from their grand totals. And therefore, what we have is these levels of contribution to um, radiative forcing from the three main contributors and what we do about reducing them. <clears throat> There's a picture of some persistent contrails and behind them, you can see bands of cirrus cloud, which may or may not have been uh, persistent contrails at some distant time in the past. The physics of formation of contrails and the physics uh, that underlies their persistence is well understood. And so when we say, what can you do to reduce um, contrail, persistent contrail formation, it's very simple you don't fly through cold, moist air. You don't fly through air which is supersaturated with respect to ice. And the, these pa pa patches of air tend to be a few thousand feet thick and maybe a few hundred miles wide and a few hundred miles long. And uh, you, you have to avoid them. And doing that it adds to fuel burn and costs and adds to CO2 and NOx emissions and it disrupts schedules and increases the load on air traffic management and nobody really wants it. But in the long run, if it turns out that contrails and contrail cirrus are in fact the biggest single contributor to climate change from aviation, then that is a price that may have to be paid because when it comes to contrail reduction, there is no alternative. There's no silver bullet. There's nothing you can add to the fuel to, uh, to stop contrail forming. NOx emitted at altitude, um, what can be done to reduce the climate impact of that? The first thing is to reduce fuel burn because that actually reduces NOx just as it reduces CO2 emissions. The second is to introduce technology which, which reduces the EI, the emissions index of NOx. That is the number of grams of NOx emitted per kilogram of fuel burned, which today is around about 12 or 14. Um, technology on the shelf is the lean burn combustor, um, which has been developed in, uh, and demonstrated in, in European uh, uh, technology demonstrator programs and coming along as really very interesting, quite exciting, quite promising technologies are the intercooled engine cycle and cooled cooling air, both of which are uh, expected to be technology demonstrated as technology demonstrators in the uh, in the near future. Um, reducing the overall pressure ratio of, of the engine, which would increase fuel burn, um, nevertheless substantially reduces NOx emission. Um, it also reduces maintenance costs and first costs, so it may have some appeal. Um, and reducing cru cruise altitude, either as an operational measure for the present fleet, which would carry with it quite significant fuel burn uh, increases, 
or taking it into account in future aircraft design, um, which would enable you to optimize the aircraft with a much smaller fuel burn penalty. These are both possibilities. Um, and if we get to the point where the engine and airframe manufacturers are looking at those in the design optimization, then they have to take account of uh, what, what kind of uh, NOx technology they're going to have in their aircraft. There's a picture of some hardware. This is the Antl program. That, uh, it's an EU, a large EU um, uh, engine demonstrator program. Uh, there's some hardware. Looks shiny, that's what you can say. And the, uh, the achievement, demonstrated achievement, was reducing NOx to 40% of the CAPE 2, which is the certification level in effect in the year 2000, which is 60% reduction in NOx. So that 80% target that was set by, um, uh, by Akari um, does look to be uh, not that un unachievable. Fuel burn is the, um, is the big challenge. This chart, which comes from the IPCC report of, of 1999, shows for the year 1990 the breakdown of CO2 emissions from the transport sector. Um, aircraft are about 12%. Uh, road transport, um, cars and trucks, is about 75%. The, um, the Stern Review, which was published last month, has a breakdown for the year 2000. Aviation is again 12%. Um, the road vehicles have gone up from 75% uh, to 76%, which is probably all rounding to the nearest number. So not very much change. Um, and when we look at transport as a fraction of the total world um, CO2 emissions, and what we're looking at as a total here is called CO2e. So that's the equivalent to CO2 emissions, but capturing all the methane and uh, nitrous oxide and other greenhouse gases. Um, and the Stern Review says that it, transport CO2 is 14% of the world total greenhouse gas emissions in 2000. It's more difficult to pin down for the IPCC report, but I, 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 I've tried and I don't think it is less than 14%. I think it could be in the range 14 to 16%. So when you hear John Humphreys on the Today program say, and of course aviation is the biggest emitter of CO2, isn't it? Um, you have to say, well, just a minute, the Stern Review actually says it's 1.6% of the world's total. Uh, and if John Humphreys says, well, aviation is the fastest growing source of greenhouse gas emissions, again, when you look at it, its proportion of transport hasn't changed. And if anything, transport has reduced um, uh, over, the, over that decade. So it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb until you divide it by itself, the rate of increase divided by the absolute level. And then in percentage terms, it's growing faster. But, uh, you know, 7% of something very small um, isn't actually going to destroy the world. So just just uh, be on your guard when you listen to discussions of that on the radio or read your uh, environmental articles in your newspapers. Distribution of uh, that around the world, this is... Um, fuel burn by country of departure, not by nationality of passenger, by country of departure. The US accounts for almost half the world's aviation fuel burn, and its domestic traffic alone accounts for um, more than a third. Uh, and you can see the UK comes a, a poor second. 
and most of the UK's travel is, is uh, international travel. And uh, I'm, I'm sure perhaps only half of it is by Brits. So if we are going to see significant reductions in um, world fuel burn, we have to go down a road that takes the Americans along with us. We have been reducing fuel burn. This shows the change over 40 years um, since the introduction of, since Comet 4 entered service, which has taken us the 100% point um, in 1960, entered transatlantic service. And the, both engine advances and um, aircraft advances have contributed to that 70% reduction. The exponential curve there is one that I fitted through. I've lifted this figure from our first Greener by Design report. Uh, and my purpose in doing it was that if I fit that over the past 25 years, which is the period since uh, the big turbofan, the, the high bypass ratio engine came in, um, and I say, well, this is a logical way of extrapolating the trend to see where we might get to. Where we get to by, 19, uh, by 2050 is um, less than further 10% improvement. That is to say, uh, less than 27% on this scale. So uh, just continuing the evolutionary trend without some major changes um, won't get us to where we want to be. So we have to go back to first principles, and I'm sorry, this is the first, but won't be the last equation I'm going to put up. Um, it's the Breguet range equation, which uh, has, um, to my mind, a status very close to the second law of thermodynamics. It is a very solidly based equation. And what I've, I've rearranged it in a form in which I can write the fuel burn per ton kilometer. Um, this is the weight of fuel burn divided by the weight of the payload in the range of the aircraft. And on the right-hand side of the equation, I don't have many, many levers to pull, many variables. <clears throat> this term x, which is a sort of range performance parameter, is the product of the calorific value of the fuel, um, the overall propulsion efficiency, and the lift-to-drag ratio, the aerodynamic efficiency of the aircraft. And um, these two don't have, these, these two are both dimensionless, but Calorific value of fuel, people usually think of it in terms of joules per kilogram, but that actually has the dimension of length. So for kerosene, um, you can say H has a value of about 4,350 kilometers. And when you multiply it by current values of propulsion efficiency and lift-to-drag ratio, you come out with a value of X of around 30,000 kilometers, So just to give you a feel. Um, the second term of significance is the ratio of the empty weight of the aircraft to the payload, weight of the payload, and then we have this um, function which just is the range divided by the um, range performance parameter. And I'll start with range. What I'm going to show you is a graph which is this turned upside down. It's the payload times the range divided by the weight of fuel burn, the payload fuel efficiency. And, and the outer boundary of this, the outer line, is the design curve for an aircraft with a particular design range, um, it gets that um, level of performance fuel efficiency when it's operating at its maximum payload. More interestingly um, is the, the red curve, which uh, is an aircraft act, act operating with its maximum passenger payload in two class seatings, plus their luggage, but uh, no significant freight load. Um, and so point D here is the design point for a 15,000-kilometer aeroplane. At that point, the aircraft has a full passenger cargo plus their luggage in two-class seating. 
its fuel tanks are full, it's at maximum takeoff weight. Um, if you operate that aircraft over a shorter range, you come along this curve, um, you're carrying less fuel. <clears throat> but the, your fuel efficiency increases a bit, but not very much. Um, and while it's more efficient to fly this airplane over a 6,000 kilometer range, if you want to fly 6,000 kilometers efficiently, you do it in an airplane designed to do 6,000 kilometers. Uh, which raises the question, if we want to go 15,000 kilometers, what happens if we do it in three steps, three hops? So we designed a, a paper airplane, um, maximum takeoff weight 300 tons, design range 15,000 kilometers, its payload came out at just under 26 tons. We then designed an airplane to carry the same uh, payload, but over a range of 5,000 kilometers. When you look at the two airplanes, the empty weight of the medium-range airplane is only half that of the long-range airplane, and the fuel burn um, is only half that of the long-range airplane. So it, the long-range airplane costs less to buy by a factor of two, and let you spend less on fuel by a factor of two. And in both our reports, we've actually said uh, we recommend that a proper engineering study, because what we've got here is based on simple parametric numbers. What we want is a proper engineering and system study of undertaking long-distance flying um, in the medium-range airplane. We shouldn't get too carried away with the, this thing because this is now a plot of the percentage of fuel burned of the to world total against stage length. And what we see is that the 50% line occurs at, at less than 2,500 kilometers. So the short and, and medium short range sector burns half the world's fuel. And the sector beyond which we would say you should be breaking the, the, the flight down into more than one segment um, accounts for only about 20% of the world's fuel. So if we're looking for technological solutions, whilst it's interesting to focus on these big long-range airplanes like the blended wing body, we really have to find a way of addressing the, the short and medium-range one too. Uh, what can we do with the sec going to the second term in that equation? Um, <coughs> we have the ratio of empty weight to payload, which we want. The increased use of carbon fiber reinforced plastic um, and other light materials is, is the strong, uh, the strong uh, candidate here. And the Boeing um, 787 and the Airbus A3, A350 will both be significantly lighter than uh, uh, aircraft made up mostly out of aluminium and will be significantly more fuel efficient as a result. Uh, I'm an aer aeronamicist myself, but I'm told there is scope for more efficient structural design um, and there's particularly the scope for big advances in wing design methods using large-scale computing. For larger airplanes, the flying wing is more structurally efficient than the, uh, the fuselage and, and wing combination we currently have. Design parameters can... Um, you can reduce the aircraft weight by actually opting for a lower cruise Mach number and uh, enable you to put on a thicker or less swept wing and reduce the wing weight. Uh, we've just seen that design range has a big influence on the empty weight of the aircraft. And regulatory margins, are we carrying more uh, reserve fuel than we really need to these days? The margins for reserve fuel and the margins for reserve wing strength were set. To, those regulations have been around for some time now. And it's possible that to re revisiting them would give us some weight savings. And then there are design and operational measures. Um, 
can we improve cabin dimensions, uh, what can we do about seating layout to get uh, more passenger payload into the aircraft, and there are operational measures like uh, what do we do to get our load factors up, all of these. And if you go to the uh, uh, subgroup report, there's a whole range of smaller things, all of which can contribute to reducing weight, uh, and all of which will undoubtedly go ahead. And be... Let's come back now to uh, the Breguet equation, really just to remind you of what goes into this parameter X. I'm now going to talk about these three. There's very little you can do to improve uh, the calorific value of fuel. Kerosene is actually the best liquid fuel available to us in terms of having the highest value of H, unless we go to liquid hydrogen, which has about three times, 2.7 times higher value, but, uh, but isn't going to be around for 50 years or so. So we're left with propulsion efficiency and lift-to-drag ratio. Propulsion efficiency, um, I think this is the last equation. Um, propulsion efficiency, you can write down as the product of three efficiencies. The first, the thermal efficiency, is the efficiency of the gas generator, the efficiency with which you convert the energy in the kerosene into energy in the exhaust stream. Um, the transfer efficiency is the efficiency with which you convert the energy into the exhaust from the core of the engine into energy in the exhaust from the whole machine. And uh, the propulsive efficiency is the efficiency of that propulsive jet itself. It's called the fruit efficiency. It was understood, well understood in the 19th century. Um, to increase the propulsive efficiency, you have to reduce this term. And this term, G is acceleration due to gravity. That is the specific thrust of the engine, which is the thrust in kilograms divided by the mass flow through the engine in kilograms per second. And V is the flight velocity. So reducing specific thrust and increasing flight velocity increase propulsive efficiency. Um, increasing flight velocity runs into a brick wall once you get up to transonic conditions and you get wave drag, shock waves around the wings of the aircraft. Um, uh, and, and that limits your what you can do with V. Transfer efficiency is the product of the aerodynamic efficiency of the turbine and the aerodynamic efficiency of the fan. And these are both high. They've, they've been, you know, these are, machines are being, being developed for 60 years now. Um, so there will be some further improvement in transfer efficiency, but not a lot, and I shan't talk about that. Um, this shows the thermal efficiency of, uh, the evolution of thermal efficiency of the engine. It's plotted against the overall pressure ratios through the full compressor system in the engine. Um, and each of the lines on here is a line of constant turbine entry temperature. And what you see is that through the years, uh, increasing thermal efficiency has required both the pressure ratio and the turbine entry temperature to increase. Turbine entry temperatures now are significantly above the melting point of the, uh, of the material that the turbine blades are made of. You rely on uh, cooling to keep the blade in one piece. Um, and to push up to this target, requires further increases in turbine entry temperature and further increases in pressure ratio, both of which are difficult, technically difficult, but uh, undoubtedly the engine companies will get there. Whether they decide to pause short because of re minimizing NOx emissions is, uh, remains to be seen. Um, the other uh, variable that I talked about, the propulsive efficiency, this is a plot of specific thrust along the bottom and various parameters plotted against specific thrust. The one thing that continues to reduce as you reduce noise, reduce specific thrust is noise. Um, propulsive efficiency increases steadily, but you find that the fuel burn goes through a minimum and starts to rise again. Uh, and that is because to reduce specific thrust, you have to put a bigger diameter fan on the engine. 
Um, and that adds to the weight of the engine, the fan, both the fan and the uh, low-pressure turbine are bigger. And you put a bigger nacelle on, which also adds to the weight, and it increases the drag of the nacelle, and it increases the interference drag between the nacelle and the wing. And as a result, you're you, you, uh, diminishing returns set in, and if you reduce specific thrust too far, then the, the weight and drag penalties of the nacelle um, kill you. This, this dates from about uh, 2000, this slide from Rolls-Royce. Um, the Boeing 787 and the Airbus A350, I think, will incorporate nacelle technology, which will involve lighter nacelles and lower drag nacelles, and therefore may move this minimum over here, but it'll be a while before we get to see the details of that. The other thing you can do about the nacelle, of course, is throw it away. Um, and this um, advanced contra-rotating propeller um, was something that Rolls-Royce tested in the ARA wind tunnel about 15 years ago. But at the time, oil prices were low. Uh, there are noise problems associated with contra-rotating propellers, and there's also concern about safety associated with them. And as a result, work, further work on propellers was stopped. But um, I'm expecting interest on it to resume, and I'm expecting us to see doing some more work on that in the not-too-distant future. Then we come to lift-to-drag ratio, the other term in, the, in that parameter x. I'm sorry, it wasn't the last equation. Um, we can write drag of an aircraft down as the sum of two terms. The first one is the profile drag of the aircraft, the drag at zero lift. S suffix D zero is the drag area of the airplane at zero lift. The second term is the vortex drag, the drag that's in the vortices trailing from the wingtips. Um, and the key thing here is the, is the ratio of weight to wingspan squared. Uh, w is the weight of the aircraft, B is the wingspan. And lift to drag ratio is a maximum when these two terms are equal and therefore, when the, the maximum lift to drag is given by this equation, it occurs at a particular value of Q, which is the dynamic pressure of flight, uh, uh, which is determined by the cruise altitude and the cruise Mach number. Uh, what can we do to increase lift to drag ratio? We can increase the wingspan. That seems pretty obvious from the equation. But on the other hand, that increases wing weight. And the, the, the dominant configuration, the swept wing airplane of today, is very close to the optimum. If you can find a way of reducing wing weight by the use of plastics, for example, then the re-optimized aircraft will have a greater span and a better lift-to-drag ratio. Um, in principle, you can reduce the vortex drag factor, kappa. In reality, it's close to um, the theoretical maximum, and there's quite a long discussion in our last technical report as to why there's very little to come from there. And then finally, you can reduce this zero lift drag area, SD zero. There's very little possibility for the dominant configuration if it has fully turbulent boundary layers over it, as they do now. But there are radical solutions which do have considerable potential. The first of these is the blended wing body. Um, and that really, it just turns out that for geometrical reasons, that has a, a lower ratio of um, profile drag area to wingspan squared. Um, then there is a technology called natural laminar flow control. Um, it was used with great success on the P-51 Mustang fighter in, um, in World War II. It enabled it to escort bombers all the way to Berlin. Uh, natural laminar flow is achieved by um, shaping the surface of the wing so that the pressure distribution over the forward part of the upper surface of the wing keeps the boundary layer in a laminar state instead of it 
transiting to turbulence. Turbulent boundary layer has a much higher friction drag than laminar boundary layer. Um, if you sweep the wings, you introduce instabilities along the leading edges, which cause the laminar flow to break down. So it only applies to aircraft with low sweep and aircraft which are not too large. Um, but it could apply to a, an aircraft of about the A320 size if, uh, if it was an aircraft with unswept wings. Hybrid laminar flow control uses the same, uh, it gets re drag reduced in the same way, but uh, it involves um, having a perforated upper surface, really having a, the up, up forward part of the upper wing surface being made, having a dummy skin of um, thin uh, laser drill titanium through which you suck flow. Uh, and that enables you to maintain laminar flow over the top half of the forward half of the a wing on a larger aircraft and on a wing with quite significant wing sweep. So um, uh, applicable perhaps to an aircraft up to about the size of the A320 and with the A310 and with sweep a bit like the A310. And the last one of all is the full all-over laminar flow control. And this is an aircraft whose outer skin is entirely um, a perforated skin through which flow is sucked. Um, it's, it's not cloud cuckoo land, but it, it's, it's quite a while since it's been investigated seriously. Um, for those who want to follow it, there is a discussion of this in the uh, 206, uh, 2006 issue of the Aeronautical Journal, August 2006. Um, I wrote the paper, so I warmly recommend it to you. Um, an example of the blended wing body that is different from our mascot on the cover of our programs, our reports. This is a project being studied in the EC NACRE program. It's a large um, design conceived by Airbus. Also in the NACRE program is this, which they term the proactive green aircraft. Um, and you see that this is an aircraft with unswept wings, um, high wingspan, probably coming from the use of composites in the wings. And this would lend itself to um, natural laminar flow control. So this could be a very fuel-efficient airplane, and its engines are positioned in such a way that some of the noise is shielded from the ground, so hence the proactive green airplane. I've seen a slide with an airplane looking like this on from Airbus, which calls it the A30X, but I'm really not up to speed on that, so I don't know how seriously they are looking at that as a project. And last of all, uh, a 300-seat all-laminar flow airliner proposed by Handley Page in, in 1961. Uh, and this was at a time when there had been flight demonstrations in the UK, um, both at uh, uh, Farnborough and at Cambridge University, on vampire aircraft, which had shown full laminar flow across the whole of the wing, had been achieved in flight at quite um, at low level, therefore quite good scales. Um, the Americans had done the same, and uh, at the time this project was um, proposed, the HP-117, there was a really solid body of work about all laminar flow aircraft, both in the UK and in the States. Um, this aircraft was proposed to reduce um, direct operating costs by 30% at the time. It had a later military version, um, but which, which was the study of which was being funded by MOD, and then um, President Kennedy and Harold Macmillan signed an agreement that we would they would supply us with the Polaris missiles and we would build submarines to carry these, and um, there was no longer need for the particular military project, and funding stopped. There are also um, operational changes that we can um, think about. Um, more direct routings, air traffic control at the moment, and 
more use of military airspace, for example, would enable much more efficient um, routings for traffic. I've mentioned multi-stage long-distance travel. Air-to-air -air refueling um, as a possibility um, instead of landing on long-distance travel. If you want to fly to Australia, you do so on an airplane with a design range of 5,000 kilometers and you refuel it every 5,000 kilometers. Um, it's not as fanciful as it sounds and the economic payoffs really do seem quite significant. Um, and the other one, formation flying, um, like wild geese on migrating. Um, again, the Americans have studied this and the Swedish Air Force now um, have uh, demonstrated formation flying using um, one pilot and uh, communication with satellites to, uh, to, to position the other aircraft. The reason for the two question marks after both those is that in our second Greener by Design report, we put short paragraphs in about these two. We didn't do any heavy breathing on them, but we just said, you know, here are possibilities, and they really do have some potential. And the airlines said, you mustn't say that. It'll get everybody excited about something that really is dangerous, and, uh, and uh, you've got to mention hazard, and you've got to mention air, air, air traffic problems. So uh, we kept them in, but we did suitably qualify them so that people um, realized that they were, if you like, longer shots compared to the main, the main candidates. In that report, we put in these estimates for the percentage fuel burn reduction we would achieve with um, individual technologies. Um, we expected something less than 10% to come from more direct routings. We expected more than 10% to come from replacing turbofans with open rotors. And that's a particular candidate, I think, for the shorter and medium range airplanes, but there is a lot of fuel burned in the shorter and medium range. We expected something like 15% for replacing a lot of structural aluminium with a lot of structural carbon fiber composite. And uh, the 787 and the A350 uh, are going down that route. We expected more than 15% to come from applying hybrid laminar flow control to the whole airplane. TFNW signifies tailplane, fin, nacelle, and wing. We expected nearly 20% to come from the blended wing body, part of that coming from the greater structural efficiency of the flying wing. And we expected more than 50% to come from the laminar flying wing. Where do we go from here? On noise and local air quality, which I haven't actually talked about, there are regulations in place and ICAO regulations. They will continue to be tightened up, um, but only when the customers accept that we've made enough progress for it to be affordable. It's possible that local regulations at important destinations, um, such as London Heathrow, could be the main drivers for change. In climate change, ICAO is currently thinking about, about what we can do, but it, uh, it seems likely to be a long time before they agree on anything. Um, they are discussing limits on NOx emission at altitude. They're discussing um, worldwide emissions trading. But it's quite possible that, again, local action at an important destination, such as Europe, might be the main driver of change. And, and my point here, I suppose, is that if, if Europe sets tighter targets than ICAO is prepared to agree, then the manufacturers will meet them. And uh, the only airplane in the showroom will be a lot more fuel efficient than the last one because they've been driven to that. Um, and then the world's airlines will buy the only airplane in the showroom. So it's possible that uh, uh, action by, perhaps by the European Union, could be a stronger driver or a faster driver than a care, but, but who can tell?
Um, when we actually look at who will do what and why to reduce climate impact, when it comes to contrails and contrail cirrus, um, the main action will have to be with the air traffic management providers. Um, and they're not going to go down that route until they're required to by regulatory or government requirements. And of course, the operators and the meteorological organizations are going to be key players in, in, in doing that if and when they do it. Um, reducing NOx emissions, the real step is to incorporate the low NOx technology that's on the shelf or coming into the engine. But the engine manufacturers aren't going to do that until the airlines ask them to. And because it doesn't actually help the bottom line at all, the airlines aren't going to ask them to until there is some regulatory requirement or some other um, significant incentive. When it comes to fuel burn, again, the engine and airframe manufacturers will work to improve fuel efficiency seriously if the operators require it. But until the operators say, this thing about laminar flow control looks very interesting, uh, we'd really like you to think seriously about it in the next project. Until the operators say that, um, the uh, manufacturers um, are reluctant to invest heavily in developing that kind of technology. The main driver for this kind of change to reduce fuel burn is likely to be oil price. Uh, it could be supplemented by emissions trading. That really depends on how emissions trading works out. And there may be other financial or regulatory measures, but who can tell? So, potential by 2050. Um, fuel burn and CO2 emission per passenger kilometer down by a factor of three. This number comes by me, it's, it's my personal number, it's derived by looking at the technologies, all the technologies that we've talked about in the Greener by Design report, talking to people about why, when they might become available, and allowing 30 years for that technology to penetrate through the fleet to whatever segment of the fleet it applies. But the, when I say a factor of three, what I'm saying is the world fleet average by 2050 will be three times lower per passenger kilometer than the world fleet average in, 20, in 2000. And I'm similarly saying that NOx emission at altitude will be down by a factor of 10, and that contrail and contrail service formation down by a factor of 5 to 15, um, impact on climate down by a factor of 4 to 8. Uh, all these things need looking at by a professional and not somebody who's uh, like me sort of inventing these uh, these future scenarios. They need a critical study. But the point is that they're really, if the technologies that are we know about and we know what they can achieve, if they are taken up, that's a very big if, but if they are taken up, we can actually see the impact on climate per passenger kilometer down in such a way that the total impact on climate of aviation in 2050 is no greater than it was in 2000. And if biokerosene becomes available, uh, and if we really understand how the uh, total production of biokerosene um, works and what the effect in terms of net carbon contribution to the atmosphere is, um, we could see the carbon footprint of aviation reduced still further, um, perhaps substantially. Um, going, going back to Wilbur and Orville, uh, the, the lesson that I take, I'm about to reveal my personal prejudice now in this matter, um, the lesson I take is that what they did, and it took them two and a half years of arguing to get there, was they concluded that control, control was the essence. And once we actually worked out how to do control, we could do the rest, there was no problem. My standpoint now, looking at it, is that getting fuel burned down is the essence. 
And if I look forward 20 years, by 20 years, in 20 years' time, maybe 15 years' time, our understanding of the atmospheric science will be a lot more robust. And our ability then to decide how to design the airplane and engine such that the total contribution to climate, when you add together impact on cirrus clouds and contrails, NOx um, and fuel burn, you can design that thing to minimize the impact on climate. And the real need is to continue to push down fuel burn and to push the technologies that are going to get fuel burn down. That is the analogy to the Wright Brothers control. And uh, if you can get fuel burn down, you can fix the rest to fit in. That's my, that's my proposition. And if we do that, this kind of site will be much rarer. Our grandchildren will have much fewer opportunities than we have to go out on a beautiful morning and look up in the sky and see that. But um, they, uh, they might nevertheless thank us for um, doing what we can to help aviation do less damage to the climate. Um, and thereby, we would be, I'm sure, meeting with approval for, for Wilbur and Orville for what we've done with their invention. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, John, for uh, a stimulating uh, and, to laymen like myself, sometimes baffling uh, lecture, but, but a real challenge. Uh, and quite effortlessly, you've covered 150 years' worth of aerospace, the early 1900s through to your expectations for 2050. We do have some time for questions, about 10 minutes or so. Um, David Parkinson, independent researcher in air traffic management. Um, would you perhaps agree, you did mention um, air traffic management improvements, that that could look like some of the lowest hanging fruit um, on the tree in terms of improvements, in that that is still an enormously manual process, and we still haven't moved away, and this is the head of research at Bertini, from a system that was invented 50 years ago and is still in use in a manual way. One of the things that... I intended to say and didn't, and it is an important thing to say, is that changes in operational procedures of all kind, and that certainly includes the way we um, burn unnecessary fuel on the ground. Um, those, by implementing them, by being able to implement across the whole fleet now, or next year, or in five years, do have, they are the low-hanging fruit, they have a much bigger return than uh, some technology which is going to give you another 5% that comes in in 15 years' time and takes 45 years to get itself through the fleet. So um, I, I find it difficult to overemphasize the importance of pursuing the operational changes that can affect the whole world fleet, including the most inefficient airplanes that are flying around. Robert Whitfield from Greener by Design. Uh, John, you know, with the biokerosene, you mentioned in your conclusions at the, at the very end, but it was at sort of the very end, it, it, it didn't play a major part in your presentation. And uh, I'm intrigued to know, as you know, back in October in this room, it was argued cogently by, by uh, NASA that uh, biokerosene was, was the, the key to addressing aviation's climate change uh, problems. Uh, the fact that you sort of tacked it on at the end, is, is that is it a reflection that in your view, uh, really, it is 
further away in, in, in time in its ability to contribute than all the other areas that you've, you've uh, suggested? Yes, perhaps for the benefit of the audience, I, I uh, perhaps ought to explain just what was said in October. We had the chief scientist of NASA Langley here, and he was addressing the world energy, growth in energy demand. And his argument was that the only possible source of energy to meet this growing demand is the sun. You've got to use solar energy. And the only way of capturing sufficient solar energy, he argued, and I believe they've been studying it at Langley, was uh, with biomass. You've got to plant things that capture the energy. The problem with biomass is that it needs water um, and it needs ground. And there's not enough water. But then we have got the sea. And so, in, in short, his proposal was plant biomass in the deserts irrigated with the sea. The Sahara irrigated from the Mediterranean grow, grow biomass that is halophytic. And the Chinese, by genetic engineering, have already de developed a number of uh, edible uh, crops that grow in salt water. Um, I said this somewhere recently. I know, I said it in Toulouse last week at a conference. And a man who was a fuel expert um, shot me down vigorously and said, hopeless, it's absolutely hopeless to try and grow stuff. You can't get enough uh, of it to grow in salt water. It's not a good solution. So I, I don't know where we are on that. But what I, I do know is that if we think about it as a local solution rather than the world solution, we tend to think about growing biomass in the UK. And then we've got to address the question of um, what the alternative use of the land is. And in particular, you've got to do a very careful net energy and net carbon budget on this. The argument about biomass is that by the time you've got the fuel in your engine, you've already taken the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in growing it. Um, but uh, my reason for um, not giving it um, a sort of headline treatment, Robert, was that uh, we're not yet at the point where we've actually seen the evidence and the full analysis to say, hey, this really is um, a, a good way to go. Brazil are actually um, operating uh, their transport on biomass. They're using, I think it's ethanol that is their biomass coming from sugar. So one shouldn't be too dismissive of it, but um, if you're going to grow some biomass, you ask yourself the question, well, what would have grown there if we hadn't grown the biomass? And would that have been absorbing CO2 too? Um, it's, uh, it's, but it is an interesting possibility, and it, it, it may come out in the future. Before it comes, there is a possibility that the shortage of oil and the rising oil price will actually lead to people generating kerosene from coal and uh, other alternatives, which is actually, in, in carbon emission terms, much, much nastier than just digging oil out of the ground. And that's a real possibility in the future. So synthetic fuels do need quite careful study over the next few years. We haven't done it yet, or at least Greener by Design hasn't. John Stollery, Cranfield University. Similarly, John, you didn't say much about liquid hydrogen. Is that just too dangerous or too difficult to produce, or both? And the other thing is that all your estimates are per kilometer, per passenger kilometer, how many more passenger kilometers are there going to be in 2050? Well, the, starting at the back and working forwards, the, the IPCC 
guess was uh, a factor of four. Most of the growth coming out in the Far East, you know, from the growth in China. Um, I didn't say anything about liquid hydrogen because this was the three-quarter hour presentation rather than the hour and a half one. Um, when we looked at liquid hydrogen, which we did as part of our study, and, and it's particularly suitable for flying wing configurations, um, it has a value of th H three times higher than um, that of uh, kerosene, and therefore the optimized airplane for that has an appreciably longer range. It's probably less energy efficient. It's more fuel efficient in terms of per ton kilometer, but if you actually turn the weight of the fuel into energy, it is less energy efficient because you are carrying around the insulation and all that additional parasitic weight. Um, the real question is when will it become available and what is the environmental impact of producing it because liquid hydrogen is actually only a vector. It's not a source of energy. You've got to use energy to produce it and if you cannot produce it efficiently. I mean, the efficient way of producing it is using nuclear power, power to generate uh, generate the hydrogen um, and you, that has a low carbon cost. But if you generate it from a coal-fueled electricity from a coal-fueled power station, then it isn't environmentally very good. But if it becomes available, and if the carbon cost of producing it is there, then it'll probably find its first application in road transport because that makes it much easier. It's easier to you don't the weight penalty of all the insulation doesn't really matter on, on land transport. But there's no reason why aviation couldn't adopt to it. Um, if it can face up to the infrastructure costs of storage. But uh, in the days when I was head of the 24-foot tunnel at Pystock, we did some jet noise testing, and the people at Pystock, I was in the 24-foot tunnel at Farmer, the people at Pystock wanted to run this jet on hydrogen. And we all got ex very scared about this. Hydrogen's a terribly dangerous thing. It isn't. If you have a leak of hydrogen, it goes straight up to the roof and out through the ventilators. If you have a leak of kerosene around the place, it's much more, more dangerous. So, hydro, you know, it's a bit of a myth that hydrogen is, is dangerous. It's a problem, um, and keeping it, uh, uh, you know, safe and insulated, not having it leaking around is, is a problem, but it, I don't think it's a big safety issue. Uh, Richard Case, member of council. Uh, in the past, an avid collector of air miles. Fortunately, when I got to the top, I usually turned left. Uh, now I turn right. Uh, I didn't realize I was making a green decision. But uh, the question is, uh, in a slightly lighter mode, uh, the boss of Ryanair said a lot of this could be overcome by doing away with club and first-class travel and packing us in more tightly. I do hope your study is not going to come to that conclusion. In indeed it is. <laughs> And at the conference I was at last week, um, there was a French academic gentleman who's, well, he's an ex-Airbus man now, now retired in a prophet university, who had made a study of the factors that affect fuel burn. This was a conference about fuel burn. And um, one of them was uh, allowing people to travel in luxury. You know, he contrasted the square footage allocated to the tourist class, the business class, and first class. And, and rather suggested that perhaps, um, you know, the style of travel that we were offering to people was not compatible with us wishing to save the earth. And he made another interesting point. And when I make points about, uh, you really ought to design medium range airplanes, that really doesn't go down too well with the airframe manufacturers. Neither Boeing nor Airbus 
uh, think that's a very good idea. And you can understand why, because most passengers don't want to. Um, and the, uh, the other thing that came out, which again may not be a very popular thing to say, but he said part of the study is when you look at it, um, aircraft weight is quite affected by aircraft size. And there's a thing called a square cube law. Big aeroplanes, by virtue of it, you know, they, they, they just turn out weighing more than smaller aeroplanes. And it may well be that if, if you were to start now, um, with a clean sheet of paper and say, your task is to define the most fuel efficient way of getting from here to Australia. Uh, it may well be that what you'll come up with is something like a Boeing 757 made all out of composite with um, the most advanced aerodynamics and propulsion that you can put in it. It may well be that you'll come back with a single-aisle airplane um, and maybe fly more of them if you need to. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting thought, and it's something that we haven't looked at seriously in, in, in the parametric studies, but it's, it's there. So there's more to come in just thinking hard about how to, how to minimize fuel burn. You are trying to sort out the problem, just working uh, on the problem of the aircraft. But what to think about thinking to do something different? Because you've got the uh, problem for the emission from the aircraft. And if you would be able to emit from the aircraft something to reverse the project or reduce the, the emission, the, the problem of the emission of pollution. Is it possible? I don't know if I, you could understand. No, I'm, I'm, you can I'm, understand. I'm, You've got a problem with the aircraft. Yes. Okay. And you try to sort out the problem working with the, on the aircraft. Okay. It's not possible to avoid this pollution neutralizing the pollution uh, with uh, emitting something from the aircraft, like, uh, I don't know, antidote or something like this, <laughs> to destroy this pollution or no, minimize I, this pollution? No, I, I, think, I think the answer to that is, is no. No? If you, if you, if you burn a, a hydrocarbon fuel, you produce carbon dioxide, and it lasts for about 100 years or more. You know, the, the molecules from the Wright brothers' flight, quite a lot of them are still around in the atmosphere. They haven't been absorbed by vegetation yet. They have a very long life, and there is nothing you can do uh, practically to turn that carbon dioxide into something which is not a greenhouse gas. It's been known for 100 years or more that carbon dioxide is one of the reasons why the world is habitable. It's a greenhouse gas that is out there, and it prevents our average temperature being minus 15 degrees C. Um, there's nothing you can really do uh, to neutralize NOx as it goes out. The one thing you can do is, by engine design and technology, you can just minimize the amount that goes out from there, and that makes it unimportant. Um, and there's nothing you can do about the water vapor that you put out of the airplane. And as long as you put it out not too high in the stratosphere, it doesn't do a great deal of harm as water vapor. But if you fly through cold, moist air, it forms these condensation trails and there's nothing you can do to avoid that and, and you know there's no there are no additives no wonderful chemicals that will make all these things greenhouse uh, uh, you know environmentally friendly you know we, we just Thank got you. to do as little you know put it put as little of it out as we can uh, and the good thing about trying to get fuel burned down is that that costs the operating costs so the airlines and the manufacturers really want to do it um, but 
how far they will go in making their aeroplanes less popular with the traveling public in order to really do it is, is the big question. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, John. I ought to draw the, the proceedings to a close. I know there are a whole range of fascinating uh, issues that, that John has raised. Uh, just on a personal note, uh, the day we introduce travel to Australia in a high-density 757, please could somebody have invented a pill to send me to sleep all the way. <laughs> <coughs> You then only, you, then you, we don't need cabin crew, we don't need service, the weight comes down, and, and we've done our bit. And uh, to make that possible, um, all you need is air-to-air refueling, and I'm sure your company wouldn't mind <laughs> us establishing a need for air-to-air refueling. We, we should go on stage sometime. <laughs> Could I, at this point, call upon Sir Colin Terry, past president of the Society, my immediate predecessor, uh, to give the vote of thanks? Sir Colin. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've been... Uh, given a, a tour de force by clearly an expert in this subject. Um, Dr. John Green is no stranger to the society. Um, and apart from giving a vote of thanks, I would like to record our thanks for everything you're doing on Greener by Design. It's appropriate that uh, we have for the Wilbur Orville the topic of environment. It is extremely topical. It seems to me that uh, there's an awful lot that needs to be done. Uh, whether the will is there to do it is neither here nor there. I was interested to hear one question about control. Uh, it's always struck me as being strange the way we taxi out to the start of the runway with all engines running. Uh, and the fact, uh, question, why do we need to have the engines running at all until we actually are ready for takeoff? So that's something we can look at. And our own infrastructure as well in the, in the airfields. I was getting quite excited when you talked about liquid hydrogen. Uh, and I know many of us here um, still have the Hindenburg myth, or is it a myth in our minds, but uh, those heady days of travelling across the Atlantic in a, a Zeppelin or similar might be something we can consider again. Um, the fuel burn, controlling the fuel, fuel burn, certainly in terms of laminar flow control, is something that's been around for a time, but there doesn't seem for a variety of reasons to have been the will to tackle it. What I see coming out of all this is there is a huge challenge for industry a huge challenge for governments, but for the youth in the audience, there's a huge challenge for youth. Scientists, engineers, and technologists have got a big hill to climb here, but by God, it's exciting. And those who want to join in this uh, great pursuit, this road, whether it's finished by 2050 or half finished or a third finished, who knows, but uh, anyone looking towards entering something that's exciting and challenging only look towards entering the very exciting world and career that John has enjoyed and is now giving back into this country and, dare I say, internationally. John, thank you very much indeed uh, for a wonderful lecture, typically from you, very erudite, and if the two brothers were around, I'm sure they would applaud everything you said tonight. As you say, it's all about control, and uh, I'm so pleased that someone of your stature is there with a hand on the tiller doing some control in this very important subject. Ladies and gentlemen, would you express your appreciation the normal way? Thank you very much, Colin.